Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, hosted by psychologist, assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University, and super nerd, Dr. Colby Taylor. Um, Today's episode is a listener request to go deeper into borderline personality disorder. And we touched on personality disorders last season. I think it was season one, episode 22 of this podcast. Um, Just a quick refresher, personality disorders involve inflexible, ingrained, and pervasive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are enduring and hurt or impair you in some way, like socially or occupationally they hurt you. So I mentioned in the previous podcast that most of our psychological disorders seem to be pretty pervasive. So I'm not really sold that we should separate out personality disorders from like ADHD or generalized anxiety disorder, which both seem to be pretty well ingrained in people. I mean, they sort of seem like somebody's personality. Um, Anyways, there are three clusters of personality disorders in the DSM-5. Borderline personality disorder falls into cluster B. And cluster B disorders involve dramatic, erratic, and emotional behaviors. Um, Cluster B disorders are the least common, the least prevalent of the three clusters. Uh, At least that's what the DSM says. Um, I think clinically, you'll encounter more cases of like borderline personality disorder than like schizoid personality disorder or avoidant personality disorder. Um, That's just my own anecdotal experience. Uh, Some more review. The name borderline personality disorder refers to sort of archaic psychoanalytic language of being on the border between neurosis and psychosis, uh, whatever that means, right? Um, This language came from the 1930s, so it's a little bit outdated. Uh, Instability is the big word that comes to mind with borderline personality disorder. And instability can manifest in moods and emotions and relationships and self-image and in career. And when this instability is really severe, it can lead to impulsive and dangerous behaviors. Okay, so back in grad school, one of my textbooks was David Barlow's Clinical Handbook of Psychological Disorders. And in it, David Barlow says, quote, people with borderline personality disorder are among the neediest encountered in any therapeutic setting, end quote. And I'm not sure about using the term neediest. Um, I cringed a little bit when I read that in grad school for the first time. Uh, But I will say that the cases of borderline personality disorder that I've worked with have been among some of the most exhausting and intensive clients that I've had. Uh, One of my colleagues once jokingly said, I think it was jokingly at least, that one of the best assessments for borderline personality disorder is how emotionally and physically drained you feel as a therapist after session. Now, seriously, though, about assessment, uh, one of the most used assessments is the DIB-R, which stands for the Revised Diagnostic Interview for Borderlines which is also a little cringeworthy, uh, that last bit at least, right? We generally try to use people-first language when we talk about psychological diagnoses, like saying a person with schizophrenia instead of saying a schizophrenic, or a person with borderline personality disorder instead of borderlines. Anyways, the DIB-R is a semi-structured clinical interview. And in working with kids, we have this assessment acronym of SCICA, S-C-I-C-A. Um, or Semi-Structured Clinical Interview for Children and Adolescents. I think that's what it is anyways. Um, Another clinical interview that can be used to assess for borderline personality disorder, and really a lot of other disorders, is the SCID-5, S-C-I-D-5. 
Um, the SCID-5 stands for the Structured Clinical Interview for the DSM-5. And there's a more targeted version of the SCID-5 for personality disorders, and that's the SCID-5PD. All right. So I mentioned that working with clients who have borderline personality disorder can be exhausting. Uh, one of the especially concerning things, one of the things that keeps therapists awake at night is the high risk of suicidality. I mentioned on the last podcast that over 10% of people with borderline personality disorder will complete suicide. And that's completed suicide. There are also a high number of attempts. So three-fourths, 75% of people with borderline personality disorder will attempt suicide. And on average, they'll attempt multiple times. So that's really worrisome. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the last episode, but there's a pretty strong relationship between trauma and borderline personality disorder. And this high comorbidity has led some psychologists to even argue that borderline personality disorder should be considered a special manifestation of PTSD. Some of the research I've seen indicates that up to half of people with borderline personality disorder will carry a comorbid diagnosis of PTSD. Marshall Linehan had a study in the mid-1990s that found that a majority of women with borderline personality disorder diagnoses had experienced past sexual trauma. And a lot of people with borderline personality disorder come from environments and relationships that sort of hurt or scarred the person in some way. And we call these invalidating environments. Maybe you had a parent that responded really erratically or inappropriately to your needs as a child. Or maybe you had a romantic partner that really burned you in the past. Um, these invalidating environments might contribute to some of the fears of abandonment that many people with borderline personality disorder uh, experience or have. Speaking of trauma, um, I just picked up a copy of Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, Body, and the Healing of Trauma. Um, and maybe I'll do a special episode book review after I finish reading it. Um, I picked up the copy on a trip to Nashville recently. So uh, one of the reasons I'm a few days late in publishing this episode is that the wife and kids and I went to Nashville and then Chattanooga for sort of a, a quick vacation, uh, like a four-day vacation. Uh, my daughter Emerson, who's two, is sort of in a, a train phase, right? She likes choo-choo trains and stuff. And so we went to Chattanooga and stayed at the Chattanooga choo-choo and everything. And it was, it was really fun. Um, anyways, uh, I also mentioned in the last episode that by far the most prominent name to associate with borderline personality disorder is Marsha Linehan. And we'll talk about Marsha Linehan in the context of DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. I don't know why I add on the AL at the end. Uh, excuse me if I say behavioral therapy, it's really behavior therapy. So dialectical behavior therapy. Um, anyways, not only did Marsha Linehan have like a huge role in the conceptualization of treatment through DBT, she also had a huge role in developing diagnostic criteria for the disorder. Um, and I think it was back in the early 1990s that Linehan came up with five domains of borderline personality disorder. And the first of the five domains is emotion dysregulation and instability. And again, if I were going to associate one word with borderline personality disorder, it would be instability. And I guess if I were going to associate one person with uh, borderline personality disorder, it would be Marsha Linehan. Um, I'm huge on associations. Uh, on Jeopardy, when you have like these direct associations between things, where things almost become synonymous with something, we call them Pavlovian responses. 
and a nod to Ivan Pavlov and classical conditioning. So when you think about DBT, think about Marshall Linehan. And when you think about borderline personality disorder, think about instability. All right. The second domain is behavioral uh, dysregulation. And behavioral dysregulation often involves impulsive behavior. And sometimes this impulsive behavior is disrupt disruptive and dangerous. Uh, if you're a teenager with borderline personality disorder, it's really impulsivity on top of impulsivity on top of impulsivity, which can get really dangerous. Um, the third domain is cognitive dysregulation. And this might involve delusions or sort of dissociative identity disorder characteristics like derealization and depersonalization, which reminds me, uh, I have a mailbag we'll get to at the end of this episode on dissociative identity disorder. All right. So the fourth domain is dysregulation of self. And this might involve identity crises or the lack of sense of self. Um, and the fifth domain is interpersonal dysregulation. This involves idealization and devaluation. Uh, idealization is where you exaggerate the positive qualities of a person. So you think they're like the best thing since sliced bread, and you basically put them on a pedestal. And then with devaluation, you exaggerate the negative qualities of a person. Like they can't do anything right, and they have no redeeming qualities. So idealization and devaluation sort of remind me of that song, I hate you, I love you, um, from like five years ago. I think it was by Nash. G-N-A-S-H. Um, anyways, personal opinion, uh, that song is super annoying. Um, so Linehan's five domains to recap are emotion dysregulation, behavioral dysregulation, cognitive dysregulation, dysregulation of self, and interpersonal dysregulation. All right, let's move on to therapy. And we're going to focus on dialectical behavior therapy. But there are other therapies used to treat borderline personality disorder. Uh, there are psychoanalytic techniques. Uh, one of the big psychoanalytic therapies is Kernberg's transference focus therapy, which is usually abbreviated TFT. Um, unfortunately, TFT hasn't shown super robust effectiveness in treating BPD. Um, there are also some CBT techniques. And I sort of feel weird about separating out CBT since DBT is really an offshoot of CBT. But there is a CBT technique known as schema-focused therapy, SFT, that looks at maladaptive thought pa patterns and examines maladaptive thoughts. Uh, and these thought patterns or schemas uh, are often developed early in life, and they might relate to the invalidating environments we talked about earlier. Um, there's also psychopharmaceutical treatments. Uh, antidepressants and mood stabilizers are the big ones. Antidepressant-wise, I've seen some studies with fluoxetine. Um, you might also see antipsychotics prescribed if some of those delusional aspects we talked about earlier are present. Uh, one of the really discouraging things about psychopharmaceutical treatments for BPD is they haven't really shown to be super effective against preventing suicidal behaviors. All right, let's enter into CBT. So just like there are other treatments for BPD, Besides DBT, DBT can also be used to treat other conditions than BPD, uh, particularly eating disorders and depression. Uh, that sounded a bit zenish the way I said that, right? So that's the perfect lead-in to entering DBT. And in entering DBT, we're going to enter the paradox. Um, the word dialectical in DBT doesn't refer to language like how I might have a Southern dialect and occasionally drawl and say y'all and that sort of thing. Uh, it refers to dialectical from philosophy, which goes back to Plato, 
Uh, with Plato, right, you had arguments that occurred between different people and parties. Uh, and often these arguments were sort of contradictory in nature. And contradictions or paradoxes are going to be central to DBT. Uh, Linehan uses the phrase, enter the paradox. Um, and this phrase, enter the paradox, is inspired by Aikido, uh, the martial art Aikido. And um, I don't know that much about Aikido, but I took judo as an elective my last year as an undergrad. Right, So I'd like finished all my core classes. Um, and I could graduate early, but I wouldn't get the stipend because um, I get a stipend every semester um, as part of my scholarship. And so I sort of, I, I took like fly fishing, judo, and some fun classes my, uh, my last year in college. Um, and with judo, right, you have like pushing and pulling. Uh, and these seem to be sort of opposing forces. Uh, but they also work together to create oneness. So it's really sort of a paradox, right? You have these opposing forces that are everywhere in our universe. We have positive charges and negative charges and atoms and ions. Uh, we have life and death, right? Freud's Eros and Thanatos. We have yin and yang. So these are dividing forces, yet uniting forces. And those sorts of paradoxes are central to DBT. Um, in DBT, for example, like a, we have dialectical dilemmas. And a dialectical dilemma might consist of like biological influences against social influences, right? Sort of nature against nurture. Um, and in this example, you might be biologically prone to emotional vulner vulnerability. Um, you might experience an emotional crisis. And due to your vulnerability, you might freeze or you might even dissociate. Uh, you might lash out at others. Um, but on the other hand, you have the social influence of self-invalidation. So here you might be in an emotionally invalidating environment. Um, you might have a social network that tells you to just get over it or to not be so dramatic. And these, lead, these kind of phrases, right, they lead to self-invalidation. You might start blaming yourself. You start turning your blame inwards, right? Uh, gaslighting. Gaslighting probably fits as an example of self-invalidation here. And this is just one example of many dialectical dilemmas uh, that DBT might examine. So in DBT, the therapist and client are engaging in a sort of dialectical judo. There's tension in this therapeutic relationship. And master therapists can balance this tension. Here you can enter the paradox. You can present dialectical dilemmas, sort of like Buddhist koans, right? You can use parables. You can play devil's advocate. Uh, you can extend. And extension comes directly from Aikido. And with extension, you, you uh, sort of go along with what your client's saying, even if it seems a bit illogical. And then you as a therapist go just beyond it. So it's sort of similar to playing devil's advocate. You're really leaning into what the client is saying. And one of my favorite dialectical strategies is planned irreverence. And here you sort of catch your client off guard by making an unexpected edgy remark. Sort of like catching somebody off balance in judo. Uh, like Osoto Gare. Osotogari, I think. Uh, that's the only judo move I remember the name of. Osotogari. Uh, I think it's a throw. I don't know. Um, anyways, um, throws were my favorite back in judo, too. Those were the most fun. I wasn't really good on the mat, but I like throwing people. Uh, with planned irreverence, you might, you might cuss here. You might say, that's BS. Or I remember a female therapist who had a client expose themselves to her. And the client, I guess, wanted an emotional reaction. 
And the therapist just sort of shrugged and said, I've seen bigger and looked down at her clipboard. So there are many different dialectical strategies. Uh, in addition to this dialectical Eastern philosophy stuff, you're also doing some serious stabilization early on. So first and foremost, you want to keep your client alive. You address life-threatening behaviors and come up with safety plans. You also don't want your client to drop out of therapy. And given instability in relationships with borderline personality disorder, attrition in therapy can be really, really high. So you address therapy-threatening behaviors early on. Um, you might also address things that uh, threaten somebody's quality of life, whether it's like stabilizing their job or stabilizing an important relationship or finding stable housing or finding food security for your client. Um, also early on and throughout the therapeutic relationship, you're going to be building skills, particularly skills towards emotion identification and regulation. Uh, DBT is continually building a toolbox of skills. So once the stabilization foundation is established, you can start addressing trauma and trauma-related stress and response. And then you can work on building up self-respect and freedom. Um, in addition to doing this sort of DBT-specific stuff, you're also doing stuff that any good therapist would be doing. Uh, validation is super key to this. Uh, and some of this stuff reminds me of Carl Rogers and humanistic psychology. You're being radically genuine as a therapist. The therapeutic relationship is sort of egalitarian at times. You're, you're a team with your client. Um, there's not really a hierarchy. And as a therapist, you keep on with your ooey-gooey skills, your warm and fluffy skills, right? You listen, you observe, you reflect. Uh, but this doesn't mean that you aren't firm at times. Um, you have to be firm a lot as a therapist because with borderline personality disorder, boundaries can be a huge issue. And therapists need to establish boundaries early in the relationship and develop contingencies if these boundaries are crossed. Uh, some of these contingencies can include time out from therapy or therapy vacations. Or if they're serious enough, right, you might terminate therapy. Um, there's a ton of different books and workshops and certifications you can do to become proficient at DBT. Uh, it's not something a therapist should just go out and try their hand at. Uh, some of the more popular books on DBT are Brantley, Wood, and McKay's The Dialectical, Behavioral Ther Dialectical Behavior Therapy Skills Workbook and Marshall Linehan's DBT Training Manual. Um, I've been told by some students that the movie Girl Interrupted is a good pop cultural portrayal of borderline personality disorder, and honestly, I haven't seen Girl Interrupted. Uh, this sort of brings me to the mailbag. Um, I've had some mailbag requests to do some sort of informal episodes where I review movies and stuff and give my psychological opinion on them. Uh, so maybe I'll do this with Girl Interrupted, sort of like a mini fun episode. Uh, anyways, speaking of mailbag, I want to give a special thanks to Stephanie. Um, Stephanie suggested in a mailbag email to establish a Patreon, uh, which I had no idea how to do. And Stephanie was super helpful in walking me through how to make one. And so now I have a Patreon, and my Patreon address is patreon.com slash theabnormalpsychologist. All one word. Um, also, I have surprisingly a lot of mailbag emails. So I'll try to get to them in the next episode or two. But I have one in particular that I want to address today. And here's the email. So it says, As someone looking to pursue a career in psychology, I was thrilled to come across your podcast you generally speak in a scientific and fairly unbiased way, so I was especially looking forward to your episode on dissociative disorders. Your explanations of derealization and depersonalization were accurate. 
However, I took particularly offense to your dismissive and negative approach to dissociative identity disorder and the failure to mention otherwise specified dissociative disorders. When you talked about identity, split, and Sybil's case, I was appalled at the idea that you thought of these media forms as good representation. Those who truly have DID are not a threat to others, and it is harmful to stereotype them as such, especially as a licensed doctor. I personally feel that you did not put proper effort into the research of this disorder, nor did you handle its topic in a professional way. There's physical scientific evidence surrounding and upholding the validity of DID's existence. On behalf of myself, currently working on a diagnosis with medical professionals and other DID systems, I would like to request that an updated episode on the topic or the removal of the previous one. Uh, To be clear, I'm not asking because of my feelings towards the episode, but because of the harmful misinformation and stereotypes and threads. Wish you the best in your research and we'll be here to answer any questions you may have. Um, She also links some studies and information resources um, with firsthand accounts of DID uh, in her email. And I really want to thank Nicole for this email. Um, I appreciate feedback, even critical feedback. And I will acknowledge that I have certain biases. You might have picked up that I'm biased against certain psychoanalytic techniques. Um, I might be overly empirical when it comes to certain things. And I might be biased against some portrayals of dissociative identity disorder. So I guess my thing with DID is that I do believe people can dissociate to a degree when trauma is involved. Uh, And this starts to get really, really philosophical into what consciousness is, right? We all dissociate to a degree when we space out, when we're driving or when we're reading or whatever, right? Uh, Or we might have blackout or gray out experiences. Or we might experience a certain smell or taste that jogs our memory of something we've forgotten. Um, I know I tend to wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden remember things that I've forgotten to do. Uh, They're usually obligations to other people or jobs or tasks that I've forgotten to do. Anyways, uh, consciousness and memory are like super complicated philosophical concepts, right? They're, they're, they're super interesting. So I, I do think that trauma can cause consciousness to sort of blur and memories to be affected. But I'm not sure I would go so far as to call this repression of memories. Uh, and I'm not sure you'd completely forget about a traumatic event and only say, remember it 20 years later after hypnosis or something. I'm really skeptical of this. When it comes to personality, I also think we can get really philosophical about what personality is. Um, I think people can experience emotional states that make them seem like completely different people, right? We have this concept of social monitoring in uh, in personality, right? We have high social monitors in personality that can be sort of chameleons based on their environment. They can act in different ways. Where I'm skeptical is where we start labeling these as distinct alters that sort of come and go at the drop of a hat and have distinct names and accents and such. Um, when I read stories about people with 15 different alters or 200 different alters, I admit I'm skeptical. I'm also skeptical of some of the folks who are YouTube famous and claim to have different identities. Um, there's definite secondary gain in these situations. So depending on what you call a dissociative identity, um, you know, I don't deny that There are different dissociative identities, but to label them distinctly as alters that come and go as they please with different names and accents or uh, dialects and that sort of thing. I don't know. There's just not that much evidence out there. Um, And I'm open to changing my mind as research progresses because we, we just really don't have good research on what constitutes multiple personalities 
or it constitutes dissociation. Um, I do think it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, most of my undergrad students think it's really fascinating, and that's one of the things they always want to learn about in my psychopathology classes. But until there's better research out there on DID, um, I will remain admittedly skeptical. All right, feel free to send me mailbag stuff, and it can be critical stuff, to ctayllo 41 at cbu.edu, the subject line mailbag, and I'll do my best to address it. Anyways, that's it for now. Be safe and stay well.